There's nothing like snook hook sets at dawn or catching a tarpon in the moonlight. Find your next fishing trip made easy on fishingbooker.com and experience the magic of the Sunshine State or any other destination on your fishing bucket list. Book a blue water adventure in search of sailfish or go snapper fishing with the kids. With over 6,000 captains and trips to choose from, planning your next one just got a whole lot easier. Download the Fishing Booker app on the Google Play or App Store or visit them online at fishingbooker.com to book your trip today. Are your wiper blades chattering, skipping, or squeaking? Don't let streaks or smearing on your windshield compromise your visibility. When it's time to replace your wiper blades, stop by O'Reilly Auto Parts and see our selection. Our professional parts people will even install your new wiper blades while you wait. Stop by O'Reilly Auto Parts today. Oh, 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 O'Reilly Auto Parts. Welcome to the Wired to Hunt podcast, your home for deer hunting news, stories, and strategies. And now, your host, Mark Kenyon. Welcome to the Wired to Hunt podcast. I'm your host, Mark Kenyon, and this is episode number 405. And today, I'm joined by Kip Adams of the National Deer Association to discuss the most important trends, harvest and hunter data and news items related to the current state of deer and deer hunting in 2021. All right, welcome to the Wired to Hunt podcast brought to you by Onyx. Today I've got Kip Adams from the National Deer Association and we're doing our annual review of the deer report that the National Deer Association puts together each year. It was previously the Whitetail Report that they were putting together when they were known as the Quality Deer Management Association. But now, as most of you know, they're the National Deer Association, and we're examining those most important issues that are impacting deer and deer hunting. We're going to be talking through what deer harvest levels were and what the breakdown of the hunting trends were and, and what's new and important and or concerning in the deer hunting world? What kind of legislation is out there that's impacting us? Uh, how is COVID impacting things in the deer hunting world? How are things like CWD something that we still need to pay attention to? That's the kind of stuff we discussed today. And I want to just remind us all, and this is a reminder for me as much as it is for anybody, that to be a deer hunter today in 2021 it's not just to go out there and, and shoot a deer and eat venison and put antlers on the wall or something. That maybe was, was an okay definition of being a deer hunter 20 or 30 years ago. But today, in this modern world with all the different pressures that are on deer hunting and deer and wildlife habitat, with everything that's going on right now and all the potential dangers to this thing that we love, to be a deer hunter today, I would argue, means we need to be informed and involved like never before. Deer hunting and wild critters and wild places, they need each and every one of us. This thing requires each and every one of us to be an advocate for this stuff, to to be a fighter for these things. And so part of that means learning what's going on. We each need to have an understanding of, of what's happening out there, not just what's happening in the woods behind my house, but also what's happening at the national level that could impact my ability to hunt behind the house in two years or five years or 20 years. 
that's the kind of stuff we're talking about today. That's the kind of thing I would just implore you to, to, to try to take a little time to focus on and to think about and make sure you're doing your part as a part of this community. So the plan for today is to dive into these topics with Kip. We're going to learn a lot. We're going to get a, a sense of what the state of affairs is right now. Should we be optimistic? Should we be concerned? And what can we do as individuals to make sure that we can keep hunting, to make sure our future kids can be hunting, to make sure there's deer out there and open wild places to do it. So uh, without all said, let's just kick right into this conversation with Kip. I hope you enjoy it and thank you for listening. All right, I've got with me here on the line Kip Adams. Kip, thank you for coming back on the show for our uh, our annual visit here, uh, talking the state of whitetails and, and deer across the country. I appreciate you being here. Absolutely, Mark. Uh, good to be here. Uh, I wouldn't miss it. I, I'm glad it's become a tradition of sorts. Um, it's it's nice to have certain things that are cyclical that I can count on. With as much being so uncertain these days, it's nice to know that I can count on at least one good, high-level, what's going on in the deer hunting world conversation with you, Kip. It's, uh, <laughs> it's, it's good to know I can depend on that. Good deal. Well, I'm glad to do that. And uh... Definitely nice, uh, given uh, what's going on in the country today, that, that we can uh, talk about something that's fun and, and has some positive trends going. True, true, and and that I guess that that tees that tees me off really well, or I'm not sure if that's the, the right way to word it. That that kicks off this discussion, I think, in an appropriate way, because before we dive into the the main topic that I want us to cover, which is you know, the the trends and data and insights you guys have gleaned as you put together the 2021 deer report. Um, I, I want to kind of zoom out a little bit and and just kind of get your sense of the state of our deer hunting world. You know, given your position in charge of, um, I think your official title now, Kip, correct me if I'm wrong, but it's Chief Conservation Officer. Is that right? That's right. Yeah, okay. through uh, through the merger, um, I got a new title. Uh, it sounds very, very official. Similar, uh, re- yeah, I know. It almost <laughs> sounds like I'm on the law enforcement side now. But, yeah, but uh, true, no, I'm true. still I'm still a wildlife biologist at heart. Yeah. So, but but with that said, though, I know that you have your finger on the pulse on a lot of things within the the deer management and the deer hunting and the deer advocacy world. Um, you're you're tapped into a lot going on across the country and as you kind of alluded there's a lot going on across the country right now outside of deer hunting it's just kind of tumultuous times across health politics uh, everything and i'm curious when you look at the deer hunting side of things from a holistic point of view so when you stand back and you look at the the state of of the deer culture in America and deer hunting in America and how deer are managed across the country and, and even Canada and North America in general. Um, and when you look at that and then you consider what all this means for the future, if you were to rate the state of all of that on a 1 to 10 scale, from 1 being you can't sleep at night because you're so concerned, up to a 10, meaning you sleep like a baby at night with no worries, where would you place that rating for, for where we're at right now in your perspective? I think well, I would place it at uh, somewhere between a 6 and a 7. Um, 
I'm an optimist, so I'll say this, Mark. There's some really positive things going on in the deer hunting world right now. Some things that I'm super proud of and hunters are really reaping the benefits for. Um, there's just a couple really big things out there that, that are detracting from that. So uh, there, are, there are certain aspects that I'd say I'd rate it a 9 or a 10 out of 10. Um, there's just a couple really, really big things hurting that that's uh, going to pull that overall score down to uh, somewhere between a 6 and a 7. Okay, so so I definitely want to dive into what those couple big things are that are concerning you, but but let me add one more uh, additional add-on to that first question. I've got a couple sons who are one and three years old now, and I know you have you have children as well. A lot of folks listening do, and having that having kids, I guess in general, has for me at least forced me to look much more for much more towards the future. I think a lot more uh, forward thinking. I'm not focused on just what's going to happen next year, but I've been forced to think, okay, if I make this decision or if I vote for this policy or if I do X, what does that mean for my kid's future 20 years from now or 40 years from now? Um, What's that going to look like? So, so 20 years from now, Kip, when my two sons are, you know, leaving college or whatever they ended up doing and they're entering the working adult, you know, phase of their life. Do you think that deer hunting and the wildlife resources that we have today, do you think that will be around in the same capacity as we have right now? What do you think that's going to look like? I do. Um, uh, some of my colleagues uh, would feel the same, uh, but I do. And uh, and the reason for that is because uh, deer hunters have, have rescued our wildlife resources in the past. Um, and, and I firmly believe that they will again. There's there's definitely some big challenges on the, on the horizon right now. Some things facing deer herds that uh, that are as big a challenge as we've probably ever faced before. But um, I'm, I'm a firm believer that, you know, if for all of the, the infighting that deer hunters can do and an occasional, you know, fighting with our state wildlife agencies. Uh, fortunately, at the end of the day, we have always answered the bell and uh, it fixed things. And uh, I'm a firm believer that uh, that we'll do that again. I, I like the optimism. And I know that you are, as stated, an optimist. So I hate to start with the negative. <laughs> Sorry about that. But what are those things that you mentioned some colleagues might feel otherwise? What are the things that are making them more pessimistic or that are the maybe these are the same things that do cause you worry too what are those things that could potentially negatively impact the future that we hope for for our kids the the, the by far the biggest thing impacting uh, the future of our, of our deer management programs and deer hunting today is chronic wasting disease uh, this disease continues to spread continues to infect more deer and impact more deer hunters so uh, that more than anything else uh challenges uh, the future of our deer herds um part of it is uh you know complacency by some hunters there's there's still a lot of hunters that, that don't believe it's an issue at all and uh every day that goes by we see how more of a uh, important issue it is and how uh, more of a, an impact it's having on deer herds and you know we're getting to the tipping point in some places with that so um habitat loss is a big thing and disease you know other diseases um you know, hunter numbers, there's lots of things that always impact this, but uh, by far and away, the, the biggest challenge on the horizon for deer today is CWD. You mentioned the complacency issue. 
And I would I would add to that, in addition to complacency, I think there's also a fatigue aspect with CWD for a lot of hunters because it's something that we hear about. Folks have been hearing about it since the early 2000s when it first sort of started gaining steam in Wisconsin, et cetera. And, you know, at least for me being on the the communications side, the media side, I hear from, you know, audience members like, ah, you, know, you can just, there's this sense that you can pick up through social media and everywhere where people are kind of overhearing about it or they want to push it under the rug or, you know, it's not that big of a deal. I kill more deer than CWD does, that kind of thing. Um, how, I think, let me, th- let me take a step back. I think part of the reason that is the case is that it seems like CWD is one of those one of these issues that does not showcase the negative nature of what it means in the short term. So you don't see, you know, 50% of your deer herd disappear in one summer like you might have with EHD when that comes through town and that wipes out a bunch of deer. Obviously, like people can feel that, they can see that right away and they say, "Oh wow, EHD really clearly negatively impacted me this year and it's cut and dry, it's fast and that leaves a mark." CWD in most places is not showing up in that kind of way. It's much harder to put its finger on. It's much uh more contentious across the nation as far as how we should deal with that. In a lot of ways, it's 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 sort of analogous to what we see with COVID in that, you know, some people are impacted really significantly while a lot of other people can kind of say, well, it doesn't seem to be impacting me. Let's just go about daily life, uh, blah, blah, blah. And, and so you, you, you see controversy arising around that. Um, all this leads me to ask you, Kip, given the fact that you have probably greater insight to the realities of CWD than most of us, simply because you work in this field, you study it, you're reading all the research related to it, you're, you're trying to positively influence um, you know, the direction of how we deal with it. Given what you know about CWD and the trajectory we're on, what does the CWD impact look like 20 years from now? So using that same 20 years in the future, um, if we if we don't do anything, if we don't do the right things when it comes to CWD, what's the reality we could be facing with uh, twenty years from now, based on everything you you've seen and read and researched? Well, what we have seen, you know, in states that have had it for twenty years or, or just over twenty years, is we start to see population level impacts. So, uh, you know, a lot of people today say, "Well, yeah, we still have a lot of deer." That that may be true now, but. You know, CWD just slowly infests through a, a deer population. So, you know, it's not going to have a population level impact today or tomorrow, but, you know, 20 years down the road, it absolutely is. So, and we know that. It's very clear that we have examples of that in the United States now. So we will see population level impacts from the disease. But one of the things about this disease, you know, that makes it so uh, dangerous is that there are so many other things that are tangent to it that, that impact hunters. like even if CWD is not having a population level impact yet, just the fact that it, it is in uh, a deer herd where some people hunt makes some people hunt less. They hunt less, they're less engaged, which means they, they spend less money on hunting stuff, which means there's less money to manage wildlife. So that negatively impacts it. Well, and as soon as you have the disease now, you know, if the deer is positive, you can't eat it. Certainly, if you, if you follow any advice of the, the Centers for Disease Control or World Health Organization, 
So if you can't eat it now, you know, what do you do? A lot of hunters now won't harvest a deer if, you know, particularly an antlerless deer, if they can't eat it. So now you start dealing with other population level, you know, growth impacts, you know, where we have too many deer and it degrades habitat and that's bad for other species. And man, oh man, there's just this whole snowball effect. So, you know, one of the things about CWD that I, that I place it so high on that issue list is because it just doesn't hit the deer herd, you know, one way. It hits it from all angles, everything it impacts deer populations and deer hunting. So it's the cumulative effect of all of that, Mark, that, that really places it number one on the issue list that's threatening uh, the future of our of our deer herds. Yeah. Another thing that seems so challenging about CWD is that the management of it is is not clear cut. You know, when it comes to, I don't know, if I if I... If I've got a cut on my arm, it's very clear. People will say, well, you know, put pressure on the wound, cover it up, uh, blah, 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 stitch it up, whatever's going on. Like there's, there's relatively a clear prescription of how to deal with a challenge like that. When it comes to CWD, you know, as, as at least I've personally seen over the last 10, 15 years of myself following this personally, it seems like very few people, and that's, that's not true maybe, but there is some contention around what should we do about it? How should we manage? How should we try to deal with CWD? Um, you know, occurrences when they pop up in an area. What should the long-term uh, management guidelines be? All that stuff, you know, causes controversy. It causes, uh, dis- I don't know if it's despair, but some amount of agitation within the hunting population, within those folks that manage deer, uh, all that stuff. So, I bring that up to say that it does not seem like we have had a clear, easy solution yet. There hasn't been a, well, we just need to do X and it's going to solve all the problems. So every year when hunters hear about this, they hear, well, CW is a big deal. We need to do something about it, et cetera, et cetera. Average Joe Hunter sits at home and says, well, there's not much I can really do. I don't know how I can positively impact things or I don't see what that clear solution is. And so it might be discouraging it obviously is discouraging and i think it's also part of why sometimes you get some folks in the hunting world who just kind of turn off to it they just want to put the blinders on and focus on what i can do personally or what's going on in my hunting world and i can't do anything about that cwd stuff i can't handle what the government's doing etc etc um so my question then for you kip is you know we've talked every year about this topic to some degree since last year or in recent years, is there anything new? Is there any new progress? Is there anything that's making you more optimistic that we will have some kind of clear guidance or that we will have some kind of clear next steps or something impactful that either we as a management community, those folks in charge of making decisions, or we as the hunting community, us on the ground can do to actually make a difference here? Because it it feels a little bit daunting. No, you're absolutely right, Mark. And that's one of the reasons why, you know, we, we have not made more progress on it is because there are so many unknowns. And, you know, we, the good thing is we are learning more about it every year. Um, there's a lot of research that goes on, you know, so we learn more about the disease. But more importantly, we're starting to learn about some ways, you know, from a, a management standpoint that, that we can positively impact or, or make a, a difference, you know, to keep it from spreading. So a few of the things that we know about CWD, there's no cure, there's no vaccine, and it's 100% fatal to all deer. We know that. After that, there are so many things that we're not exactly sure about that this is uh, 
one of the reasons that that a lot of hunters either don't believe what the state wildlife agency tells them or um, just disengage on it because you know they don't have the answers. And and a lot of the states have you know provided uh, contradicting information in some cases about what you should do or not. Some states say, oh, we're not going to allow baiting because that can help spread the disease. Then you have other states that say, well, we're going to allow baiting because we think we can kill more deer around those bait sites. And, you know, it's not like the old days where hunters don't know what's going on in other states. You know, everybody has the internet, everybody looks, so you can see what your state's guidelines say and, and what hunters in other states are allowed to do. So that confuses hunters. And because of that, you know, a lot of them, you know, have not believed what their agencies have told them. So that definitely plays into some of the, the mistrust or the complacency from a hunter's end. And at the end of the day, we, we just haven't had a lot of good news for, hey, these are ways you can help. Fortunately, there are some things we do know now. Um, we don't know how to completely stop the spread of it, but we do have a better understanding of how this disease is spread. And if we know that today, if we just stop moving live deer and we stop moving the high-risk parts of deer that we shoot, that we can dramatically slow the spread of the disease down. And Fortunately, more hunters are doing that than ever before. States have some uh, restrictions on what you can move and why. And just because you have those rules in the books doesn't mean hunters abide by them. But hunters understand more today about the dangers of moving, you know, the backbone or the brain of deer from disease areas outside. So as as organizations, you're a perfect example. You share good information. Hunters follow you. They believe you. NDA, you know, we share good information, state agencies do. So today, more hunters at least understand that, okay, I can help slow the spread if I don't move these high-risk parts. I'm going to debone this meat, you know, before I take it home or before I cross the state line. That's something that that every hunter can do to, to battle this. And, you know, something that we know more hunters learn or understand today than ever before. So that's a good thing. We just need to keep doing positive things like that while we wait for the science to catch up to find a cure for this terrible disease. Okay. Okay. That, that makes sense. And that is something, you know, that is one specific example of something we can do that can make a positive impact. So I I like that. Is there, has there been any one piece of science uh, over the last year or anything that stands out to you, Kip, as most interesting or most compelling or most um, optimism inducing for you? Is there anything new on the horizon that gives you hope from the science perspective? Yeah, one thing is uh, is uh, the test, you know, the RT Quick, which is a, was a, a faster test for this disease. Um, you know, one of the limitations here to the hunters getting deer tested is, you know, we take it, we have a sample, it gets tested, we have to wait for the test to come back. It may take several days, it might take two or three weeks. Some hunters have to wait a month for the test to come back. In the meantime, you know, does the processor have your meat? You know, did you process at home? We process all of our own meat more than once. We have processed it, labeled it, have it in the freezer, and waited over three weeks for the results to come back for us to know, can we eat this or not? I mean, that's a, that's a huge burden to, to bear. Well, one of the things, at least with science now, is there are, you know, there's been progress in some testing for CWD that can return much quicker results, and there's a lot of scientists looking at being able to have much more rapid tests. So all of that is a very good thing. Hunters don't have to wait as long to know yes or no, I can eat it or not. So, you know, ideally, you know, we could do something very quickly or even an in-field test. Um, we're not there yet and probably aren't going to be for the next uh, 
few years, but at least the time frame for testing has gotten much more rapid now. And testing is becoming more available to, to a larger segment of the hunting population. So those are really, really good advances uh, in this fight. Yeah. So what what would be the NDA recommendation when it comes to testing for individual hunters? Is it is it your recommendation that if you are in a region where there is CWD that you should have every deer tested? Um, is there some kind of blanket consistent guidance that you guys would suggest for hunters? Yep. The National Deer Association uh, follows uh, the, the CDC guidelines. You know, they're the experts on this and they strongly encourage people to not eat a deer, elk, you know, any, any sort of it, unless you know that it, uh, it does not have CWD or you get a satisfactory test result. Uh, and the only way to, to know if it doesn't have a disease is to get it tested. So our recommendation is yes, if you are hunting in a, a zone where CWD has been confirmed, uh, have that deer tested before you eat it and wait until you get a satisfactory test result before eating it. Um, if you're not in the zone, you know, we have to remember most of the, the counties in the United States do, have not confirmed the disease. So it's not like it's everywhere yet. And, and that's part of this battle is this is make sure that it doesn't get everywhere. So most hunters don't have to worry about this. But for those that live in and hunt in the CWD zone, yeah, absolutely. We encourage you to, to have that animal tested. We want those states to know where that, where the, the disease is, you know, prevalence rate of it, you know, is it in just a handful of animals in a zone or is it a lot? You know, that makes a difference on how that state wildlife agency should attack it and the management uh, programs they put in place to slow that spread down or, or to try to get rid of it. So, so it's important from a sampling end and a management end, but it's also important from a, a personal safety end. Yeah. And I can attest from personal experience and I'm sure you can too. It's a pretty painless experience having to, to go and get a deer tested like that. It's, it's not a huge time commitment. It, it's a little inconvenient, but it's, it's certainly well worth, um, you know, doing things the right way and being safe. So, uh, I would echo what you just said, Kip, and encourage anyone who's in that type of situation to, to go ahead and do that. Um, uh, at the, well, <laughs> I, I guess I, I've already thrown us off of the, the headlines that you might have wanted to lead with Kip as I know that the deer report this year does not lead with a, a depressing conversation about CWD. Um, you, you guys kind of lead it with some other things. So let's get back to what you've been working on over the last couple months, which is this analysis of the state of deer and deer hunting across the country. You guys do a great job with this every year. Um, when you look at the 2021 report, what are the headlines in your mind? What are the things that stood out that you, we should uh, that we should examine here? Well, let's talk about a couple of really positive things first, and uh, because I think there is a lot of good news out there in the deer world. Um, you know, one of the things within this is as we look at the the age structure, you know, of the buck. Well, in the antlerless harvest as well, but we, we monitor the age structure of the buck harvest. Uh, just to see, hey, you know, how close do we get to have these very natural age structures out there in the deer world? You know, and what opportunities do hunters have? And uh, what we saw was that of all of the antlered bucks that were harvested, the percentage that were one and a half years old or, you know, have that first set of antlers uh, was the lowest that it has ever been in recorded history. And so we have had this huge decline in, in the percentage of yearling bucks in that total buck harvest from way back in 1989 when we started monitoring this all the way until now. So uh, what that means, Mark, is that if we're shooting fewer younger bucks, then just a much higher percentage of the buck harvest are older deer. 
and we had the lowest percentage of yearlings, and we had the highest percentage ever of bucks that were three and a half years of age or older. And uh, so that's pretty cool. You know, as hunters, we'd love to, to watch those deer during the summer. We, you know, use trail cameras and, and scout, and we take pictures of these older bucks. And then now, you know, we have a better chance to hunt and harvest these older age class bucks than at any point in my life and uh, at any point probably in the last uh, 200 years. So yeah. That's pretty exciting. And the hunters are really, really enjoying the benefits of that today. Yeah, so so I know the answer to this question, but I'm but I'm sure there are some folks, especially newer hunters, that that probably don't. The question is, why does that matter? Why does having a deer herd that is more balanced from an age structure perspective, meaning there's a a somewhat more equal number of year and a half old bucks versus two and a half year old versus three and a half year old versus four and a half, et cetera, um, why is that a good thing? compared to what was more traditional maybe 30 years ago, which was lots and lots of does, a bunch of year and a half old bucks, and very few older deer left because most bucks were getting killed their first year. Um, Why is our situation that we're approaching now better for a deer herd and better for the overall ecosystem than the alternative? Well, there's a couple of things that go into that. And one of them is that, that, Deer are far more social than most people realize. There's a lot of things that happen in a, in a deer population that is controlled by young bucks. They scrape a lot more than young bucks. You know, there's a lot of interactions with, with antlerless deer that, uh, you know, young bucks, can they breed? Sure, they can handle the breeding aspect of it, you know, but they don't handle all of the other uh, behavioral aspects the way that mature bucks do. So. I tell people, whether you're a hunter or not, you know, if you like deer, and I certainly hope that you do, even if you don't go hunting, um, you should care that we have very natural age structures, which means, you know, some bucks that are one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, et cetera, just so that that deer population can act the way that, that it's supposed to, the way that that deer herd evolved. So it's, it's a, if you take a situations today where we're looking for places where we don't hunt, um, you have very balanced age structures of bucks. If you look at Native American middens and some of the history, and I'm a huge Native American buff, so you know I love to read about that stuff. When they pull the, you know, the pieces out of those and can reconstruct uh, historic deer populations, they had very balanced age structures. So what that means is, hey, today, let's, let's be good stewards of our natural resources. Let's just not be consumers. Let's, let's be good at managing. And so part of that means, hey, let's, let's manage deer herds the way they're supposed to be and have a very balanced age structure. And uh, because of the management programs we have today and hunters' knowledge and willingness to pass these younger deer, we have much more at natural age structures, and that is a really, really good thing. Yeah. And and is it – am I right in that there's a number of biological um, benefits to that balanced structure as well? So when you've got that unbalanced situation, you might have uh, issues with – the rut and deer being bred and all sorts of different things like that, that either impact the deer and or impacts the quality of hunting. Can you elaborate on any of that? Yeah, I certainly can. And, uh, you know, there's been a lot of research just looking at, you know, the value of those older deer and, and what happens in those deer herds just from a communication standpoint. And there's some really cool research out of the University of Georgia looking at uh, the forehead gland of bucks. And, you know, that's right on their forehead, right where it, uh, right where the word says. But that gets a lot more active during the breeding portion of the year. 
in older bucks, not so much in these younger deer. And uh, University of Georgia researchers have actually identified, you know, more than 50 different pieces of information that bucks can display about themselves through activity in that forehead gland. Now, they don't know what all that means, but there's a lot of different uh, things that those bucks are sharing with other deer. And that forehead gland has a lot, becomes a lot more active in older bucks, not in these younger deer. And that's why some of your listeners, uh, you know, if you shoot an older buck during the rut and you often notice, man, his forehead, the hair looks a little wavy or it's, it's also, uh, you know, like a little redder, or a little discolored compared to the rest of it. That's because of that enhanced activity of the forehead gland. So there's a lot of really neat things like that that are going on in the deer world that the casual observer, you know, doesn't realize or doesn't recognize. And that we didn't used to see 30, 40 years ago when, because of the way we harvested deer, you know, almost no bucks made it into these older age classes. So, you know, there's, there's a lot of really cool behavioral things that impact behavior of that entire deer herd that's directed or regulated by the presence of those older bucks. Hmm. You know, a couple of years ago, I think this was two years ago, maybe, um, the percentage of the buck harvest that was three and a half or older had reached its highest ever point. Um, at that point, I think it was 34% or something along those lines, give or take. And in our conversation, you had mentioned that, um, you know, we'd kind of hovered around that for a number, for a few years. And you had said, um, I don't want to quote you here, but, but something on the lines of that, we probably have plateaued somewhere around this point. We've kind of plateaued, but then this year it's up to, I think it's 39%, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think that's the number I remember seeing. Um, we kind of took a, a somewhat significant jump there. Um, a, am I right in that? And, and B, do you think that this is indicative of, of further changes there? Are we going to see that percentage grow even higher? And was the plateau effect maybe not what you expected? Or do you think that we'll see a reverting to the mean and, and kind of just still stick in this mid 30%, you know, about a third of the overall harvest will be in that, um, you know, in this kind of category. What are your thoughts there? Yeah, you're absolutely right. Uh, I was off in my prediction. Um, I had said that, you know, at that point, about a third of the buck harvest was one and a half, about a third was two and a half, and a third was three and a half or older. And, uh, you know, I just didn't think that we would go any lower on that percentage of yearling bucks. So uh, I didn't figure, well, that meant that, you know, we just can't get too much higher on those older ones. And, uh, man, this past hunting season, you know, we saw a big jump in that percentage that was that oldest age class. Um, I don't think that we will sustain that. I really believe that it'll it'll come back to about a third in those three uh, main age classes, Mark. Um, I'm not sure exactly why that happened. You know, we have so many older ones here, but, uh, you know, I don't think we're going to see much difference from that. Um, and I should say on here to tell everybody, you know, what we're in February of, of 2021 talking about the 2021 deer report. There are still some hunting seasons that are, you know, they're just ending right now. And we published this report a couple of weeks ago. And so this data is from the 2019 to 2020 hunting season. So it's the most recent hunting season that had complete data available. So uh, all of the data from the 21 or 20 into 21 hunting season is either not even analyzed by states yet or will be analyzed over the next several months. So the hunting season that we just finished, um, um, I know just from anecdotal reports from from what I see from state agencies and see from hunters across the country, man, there was a lot of older bucks killed uh, this past year. So uh, 
I, my belief is that we're going to revert to about to that a third of our total buck harvest will be three and a half years or older. But uh, knowing how many big buck pictures were circulating online over the last few months, uh, I, I might be wrong with that. Yeah, it's going to be interesting because I think that you have this trend where the general traditional hunting population has been killing fewer young bucks and killing more older bucks. You know, year after year, that's it's been trending that direction for a long time now. But for the first time in a number of years, um, at least it seems from early indications, we excuse me, we have an increase in hunter numbers this past year and hunter participation because of, uh, you know, most people are assuming the, the pandemic effect with a lot of new people heading out into the woods for something to do and giving hunting a try. Uh, I know in Michigan, the number I saw most recently was that there was a 67% increase in new license sales this past year. Um, so if we were to make some assumptions based on that, I'm wondering if we get a bunch of new hunters that came in this year uh, that maybe you know, aren't as either educated on this type of thing or interested in waiting for a deer, for an older deer, and instead are just, hey, I'm trying hunting for the first time. I want to kill the first deer I see. I wonder if we'll see some kind of pandemic effect with the age structure of our harvest uh, next year as well. And I'm not saying it's a bad thing when it comes to new hunters getting out there. I'm just I'm just curious. I'm, I'm, it'll be int- interesting to see if that ends up being the case. And if, if the number of new hunters that came out last year is actually something that the data will reflect, or if it's more, you know, anecdotally, it seems like a lot of new people, but really when it comes down to harvest levels, that won't be the case. Um, I don't know, Kip, have you seen any early indications of, you know, if, if any of that's going to flesh itself out in the data and in reality, or is it more of just something that we're feeling? Um, I haven't seen any data on that yet. And, uh, and I don't believe any of that data is available yet, but uh, you, you bring up a good point with the increased number of hunters this year. And, uh, and that's another one of the very positive things that I see going on. You know, we had a huge upswing for the first time in a long, long time with the hunter numbers. So uh, you know, there's definitely some hunters that probably say, man, I don't want to have more because then it's just competition with me. Um, I think that's absolutely the wrong way to look at it. More hunters coming into the sport is really good for the future. So, um, there's definitely an opportunity that the, that they took some younger deer and uh, and hopefully some more analyst deer. Uh, we have seen through this R3 movement, you know, or the, this field of fork movement where people, you know, are getting into the sport from a food end. Um, you know, when I started hunting, it was, it was just because everybody I knew hunted, I wanted to hunt. Well, today it's very different. A lot of the people just starting are, you have a very food focused uh, reason, you know, they want to procure their own food. And, and I think that's great. So because of that, you know, there's there's absolutely a chance that uh, a lot more first-time deer from this past hunting season would have been antlerless deer or, or maybe a younger buck. So uh, it'll be it'll be interesting to see. But regardless of what that age structure shows, I'm I'm a huge supporter of that big influx of hunter numbers that that we saw this year. Yeah, yeah, I'm I'm right there with you, Kip. I think it's I think it's a great thing, and it's 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 just increasingly important that we can widen our base of of support and our base of participants because, you know, going back to that, what's 20 years from now going to look like? Um, if we don't keep hunter numbers up, if we don't keep support for hunting up, um, you know, it's, it's not a guaranteed thing. 
as we've seen, there's there's always going to be folks trying to chip away at our rights and opportunities to hunt. So uh, having new people into the fold is is absolutely a good and important thing. So uh, while I know what you're talking about, there's always people that will complain about the added pressure, the added uh, competition for deer. Uh, I would encourage everyone to to you know brush off that inconvenience and remember that this is this is a good thing in the long term. Now, a lot of you guys are familiar with the old hunting tradition of eating, you know, some organ, the heart or a chunk of liver off the first animal you kill. I had that when I was a little kid and it was a big deal. Organ meats were always prized by frontier people who knew the importance of getting a lot of different minerals and nutrients. And as often is the case, those guys were on to something because organs are among the most nutrient-rich foods on the planet. And you can get the same benefits your ancestors craved via convenient daily capsules from heart and soil made exclusively from regeneratively raised, grass-fed, and finished cattle. Heart and soil's unique freeze-drying process means all those important nutrients are trapped in ensuring you experience every one of the benefits of nature's superfood in a clean, convenient, taste-free capsule. Find out more at heartandsoil.co and make sure to use code MEATEATER for 10% off your purchase. That's heartandsoil.co. Use the code MEATEATER. We've all seen plenty of gadgets and fads come and go, but here's one product that stood the test of time, Seafoam Motor Treatment. Lots of hunters and anglers know that seafoam helps engines run better and last longer. And it's really simple. When you pour it into your gas tank, seafoam cleans harmful fuel deposits that cause engine problems. I'm talking common stuff like hard starts, rough engine performance, or lost fuel economy. Seafoam is an easy way to prevent or overcome these problems. Just pour a can in your gas tank and let it do its job. Now you probably know someone who's used a can of seafoam to get their truck or boat going again because people everywhere rely on it to keep their trucks, boats, and small engines running the way they should the entire season. So help your engine run better and last longer. Pick up a can of Seafoam today at your local auto parts store or visit SeafoamWorks.com to learn more. Now that we're seeing you know, a lot of reports of, of increased participation last year, have you guys at the NDA spent any time thinking about how do we keep that going? How do we take advantage of this opportunity where we had a bunch of new people coming in? Um, how do we keep them here? How do we keep them involved, encourage them to stay involved? How do we make sure this isn't a one-year blip on the radar? Do you guys have any thoughts on that or anything you can share uh, for all of us to think about? Oh, man, do we ever. And, and we have spent a lot of time thinking about that and uh, that we, you know, this year we are very fortunate that we have uh, the opportunity to host the Southeast Deer Study Group, uh, the biggest deer biologist meeting of the year. Um, it's virtual this year because of the pandemic, and we have the the unique opportunity to host that. That exact question you just asked, we actually have uh, specifically invited a handful of speakers, very prominent wildlife officials, to speak at that conference to address that exact thing because we feel that is such a huge issue. And the, I will say this, I'll, I'll give you my thoughts on this and what, uh, what NDA is feeling with this. And uh, you know, I'm very interested that we're going to help make this a national conversation. Uh, you're right. There's a lot of new people in. Uh, many people who are starting hunting today 
starting for, for different motivations. Might be food related, might be other uh, recreational things related. But our, our take on this is, is once we have them here, you know, now to keep them, we need to make sure that they feel welcome and that they feel like they have the resources necessary to, to have fun with this and to be successful. And uh, there are some state wildlife agencies doing a great job with uh, user-friendly websites and information for folks. Uh, because think about it, this is not like learning to, you know, to play soccer or, you know, or, or, or play piano or something. Um, getting into hunting can be very, very difficult. Um, from a mentor standpoint, from an understanding standpoint, you know, gosh, you're trying to kill something for, for God's sake. So, uh, you know, it can be very daunting. So we think it is incredibly important to provide, you know, an overabundant amount of resources for these new hunters, whether that's videos, uh, you know, written information, mentoring opportunities, et cetera. So that now that they're here, we want them to have a positive experience and want to stay and as you're aware, you know, this can be the most rewarding thing in the world is, is to find pleasure in the outdoors. And uh, we want to make sure that these hunters do have an opportunity, you know, to do that and make sure that it's not a bad first experience. So we're not, you know, we don't want it to be an unsafe or, you know, an unfun one. So have fun, let's be successful, whether they shoot something or not, if they learn something and enjoy themselves, you know, that is how you can measure success. So, um, yeah, we, we want to make sure that this, the resources they need are there so that they stick around, stay, and then ultimately, you know, expose somebody else to the outdoors. Yeah, the, the greatest uh, tool for adding new hunters to the fold is more new hunters who can pass it on to other people. Mm-hmm. So uh, there's a lot of truth to that. Um, back to the report a little bit. Well, we, we talked about how the age structure has been shifting in, in what, you know, seems to be objectively a positive way with with fewer young deer being killed, more older deer being killed and, and achieving that more balanced population. That's a good thing. Um, another trend within the deer uh, harvest across the country seems to be a little bit more concerning. Um, and this is something you and I have talked about over recent years, and it just keeps on going this direction, which is uh, buck harvest going up, but doe harvest going down, 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 down. Um, and this is a reversal of a trend that, you know, had been viewed as a good thing for a lot of years where, you know, 30, 40 years ago, folks, you know, thought you only kill bucks. This is my grandpa's perspective for a long time. It was, you killed bucks, but you don't kill does because, you know, we want more deer. There weren't many deer back in the day. So it was viewed as sacrilege to shoot a doe. Um, and that resulted in these unbalanced populations with overpopulations of deer in some areas and, you know, quality habitat being chewed down to the ground because of that. So for a lot of years, you know, management agencies and organizations promoted the fact that we do need to kill deer or excuse me, kill does. This is a big thing that you guys at the QDMA preached for many years. The fact that, Hey, we need to have a significant doe harvest to manage populations, to be balanced with habitat. Um, so, for a lot of years, doe harvest went up and up and up. But now, since 2007, I think I saw in the report, doe harvest has gone down 20%. So uh, now here in 2021, Kip, and you've been able to see this trend now for quite a while, what's going on? Why is this happening? And is this as concerning to you as as it looks to me? It, it is concerning to me. And, and this is another one of the, the biggest issues that, that we're fighting right now. Um, and I think this is part of the, the whole pendulum that swings, you know, side to side. Uh, the 
you know, the, the advent of quality deer management, you know, back in the, the late eighties and was all about, you know, Hey, balancing deer herds with a habitat. Let's make sure we take enough antlerless deer. And, and it took a long time for that to, to penetrate the hunting ranks, you know, for hunters to become knowledgeable enough to know that that's, that's a good and necessary thing. And, um, and they did that. And, uh, 1999 was a monumental year for, for deer management. It's the first time in the U S history that our hunters took more antlerless deer than antlered bucks. And, uh, and that trend was continued uh, for the next uh, just about 20 years. And uh, so that's part of the reason we had such big gains in the health of our deer herds and the health of, uh, of our wildlife habitat because we did a far better job having the right number of deer for what, for what the landscape, landscape could support. And, uh, you know, too many deer is bad for deer and bad for the habitat and, you know, bad for all the other wildlife species. So, uh, well, to add to what you just asked about, we're kind of seeing that pendulum swing the other way some. In uh, 2013, 2014, 15, kind of in there, if you remember, we had a couple 100-year uh, hemorrhagic disease years. Uh, mm -hmm. Two of the, well, I say 100-year, you know, with those events, they say, oh, this will only happen once in 100 years. Well, it happened twice within 10 years. And uh, we lost a lot of deer from that. Uh, we have a, a correspondent at a time where we lost a lot of habitat across the Midwest with a high corn and soybean prices. Uh, folks were, were pulling millions of acres of land out of CRP. Um, so there was a few things that, that kind of played together that all of a sudden you add this enhanced animals harvest and, and some deer herds went lower than, than our state wildlife agencies prescribed. Well, that scared a lot of hunters. So what we have seen since then, Mark, is that they have really, really backed off on the animal side. And we have deer herds growing out of control in, in many places. And that's evidenced by this increasing buck harvest each year. That's a direct result of or direct uh, indication of rising deer herds. So the three uh, last years of hunting season in a row, our hunters have reverted to some old time ways. And we've actually killed more of antler bucks than we have antlerless deer. And uh, there, there's definitely some states that, that can have very successful programs doing that. But uh, the vast majority of, of whitetail states that that's a recipe for disaster. You know, they are productive enough that we are pumping enough fawns into the system that we need to be shooting more antlerless deer than antlered bucks annually, or we're getting ourselves in trouble. And uh, we are, we have a bunch of states that are getting themselves in trouble today because we just simply aren't shooting enough antlerless deer. So what's, uh, for, for those that, again, just to get, our base is covered here for people maybe aren't as familiar with this particular issue. Can you give me the cliff notes on, on what the negative ramifications of this could be? So if this continues and we keep harvesting fewer does, we keep on shooting a bunch of bucks. Now we've got these deer populations out of control. If, if you had to tell someone in an elevator over 30 seconds, why that's a bad thing, what would that be? There's any environment only has a certain amount of food available. To feed, uh, you know, a certain number of deer, and if we don't shoot enough antlerless deer, the deer herd just grows more or above the amount of food that is available. So that negatively impacts the health of that deer herd, and uh, is not good for the habitat or any of the other wildlife species that are living there. Yeah. So is the solution as simple as all of us out here listening get our butts in gear and and buy a few more doe tags and and kill a few more does next year, or is there any larger message you want to get out on this front now that that's a lot of it and what most hunters don't realize is that you know it doesn't take a lot more dose per hunter 
Um, if you take a look at, at last year's hunting season, and you know many hunters find this number just unbelievable to say that less than half of the hunters in the U.S. shoot one deer a year. Wow. You know, as we see what the bag limits are, I think, gosh, many states you can shoot two bucks and a couple does, and man, we're going to wipe our deer herds out. But the reality of it is only 42% of the hunters last year shot one deer. That was it. Huh. And only eight, only 18% of the hunters shot more than one deer. And what happens, Mark, is everybody would rather shoot a buck. I shouldn't say most hunters would rather shoot a buck than a doe. And, and I totally get it. I like to shoot bucks too. So but what that means is we just have a smaller and smaller number of hunters shooting any does during the year. So yeah, we're not asking hunters to go and shoot three more does next year. We're just asking hunters out there, hey, you know, shoot a doe, just one, and, uh, you know, feed it to your family. If not, give it away to another needy family. So there's there's great uses for that. So this is something that's entirely fixable by hunters, and uh, a lot of it is just them understanding the need or how they can contribute positively to the health of the deer herd if they shot that one doe. Yeah, yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a simple fix right there. Put more meat in the freezer or share with some folks in your family or community and, and you're doing a good thing for the deer population and for the trees and plants and grasses and all the other animals out there that depend on that balanced habitat. So, uh, it's, it's, it's a win-win on that front. Now, another figure that stood out to me within the report this year is, is again, the continuation of another trend we've talked about in recent years. It seems like there's a lot of things that, that aren't popping up new. It's just, we're going, we're sliding down these slopes and, and this one is a little bit different as far as its impact than what we just discussed. We just talked about the worries of more and more deer. This trend points to something that would be worrisome if we were worried about not having enough deer. And this is fawn recruitment. Um, the recruitment rate of fawns, which is basically, you know, how many fawns, how many young deer make it to the fall make it to the fall. How many, how many does that are born in the spring, fawns that are born in the spring, make it to the fall. That would be a fawn that is recruited to the adult population. And I know that as you guys describe in the report, um, you know, that's measured across most states and we've seen this change over time. And in most places across the country, um, this recruitment rate has been declining pretty significantly. Um, can you elaborate a little bit um, for those that aren't familiar with this on exactly what that decline has been and uh, why that's concerning if if it is to you yeah this is one thing that we watch very closely because it's a great measure of productivity of these deer herds and uh, which is a good measure of hey how many deer could we be shooting a year you know and, and keep a very sustainable healthy deer herd and you know people think that man those does have twins and so that's you know each doe is recruiting a couple fawns and the reality of it is that that's, that's not true and, and recruitment is you know, a fawn that has been born and is alive at about six months of age. So think of day one of your hunting season in the fall. That's when you measure fawn recruitment. So it's the number of fawns that are alive and are being recruited into that deer herd then. And, and you just measure that on a basis of, you know, how many fawns are there for the adult does that are there. And what's happening large scale is that the, that number has really been declining over the last two decades uh, in the U.S. And uh, back in 2000, uh, the average was was 0.81 fawns per doe. So what that means is, you know, the average doe out there uh, was almost replacing itself with a, with a fawn being recruited in. So you know, there's a lot of fawns that are born in the spring, you know, that die to, to predators or disease or malnutrition or hit by car or whatever. But uh, it was almost, 
you know, a one-to-one ratio. Well, fast forward to today, and that has declined to, to 0.63 fawns per doe. So what that means is, you know, we're just recruiting fewer fawns. Now, part of that is there's a lot more predators than there have been in the past, but part of that is just health of the deer herd. You know, as, as we get deer herds that are above what our habitats can support, those does are not as healthy, and they just simply can't recruit as many fawns. So that, that plays into this, you know, as well. And a lot of hunters watch this and they see, you know, coyotes or they see bears, stuff killing fawns. So because of that, they think, man, I'm not going to shoot a doe this year. Well, that's not the right attitude to take. The, the right attitude is, hey, let's look and see what your state wildlife agency is monitoring and measuring for this and what they want to see from an antlerless harvest to keep these things healthy. You know, in many cases, as we shoot more does, uh, the remaining does get more to eat. They become healthier. They actually can recruit even more fawns. So this is a, a very uh, good thing to monitor uh, to keep track of health of deer herds. And uh, there's no doubt this has been declining. But uh, fortunately, it's still at a rate mark where deer herds are, are very easily replacing themselves. Um, you know, if this was drops a lot more, I think then you start to get into the danger zone a little bit. But uh, large scale anyway, we're still in good shape in most places from this fawn recruitment rate. Um, th- there's no doubt that there are locales that are really having trouble recruiting fawns. And, and, and some places in the southeastern U.S. Are, are actually having a hard time right now, you know, growing fawns. Uh, large scale, like where you are, where I am in Pennsylvania, and most of the country, um, even though this number is less than it has been in the past, we're still in a very healthy situation for the number of fawns we're bringing into our deer herds. Hmm. Okay. Well, that's uh, that that's reassuring. Um, so, Kip, then when we look at the the rest of the report and the other data you collected and we're working on here coming to 2021. Is there anything else that stood out to you as, as noteworthy uh, or particularly encouraging or discouraging that you want to touch on as far as deer harvest trends or, or anything going on in the deer or deer hunting world? Yeah. One of the things that I think is pretty interesting is uh, if you take a look at the deer harvest by weapon type, um, you know, we monitor this just to see how changes of, of harvest occurs, you know, through archery and firearms. And 15 years ago, Mark, only about 15% of the entire deer harvest was taken by bows. And, and today that's 25%. So that's grown a lot. Um, it's kind of plateaued the last few years, but that's very different than the past. And it's, it's a direct impact of, you know, crossbows and expanded archery opportunities. And, you know, it's just a lot easier for archers to get involved today. And uh, what I think is interesting about it, though, is as you look at that number and how it's changed and try to compare it to hunter numbers, what we see is we haven't seen a big number shift in actual numbers of hunters in the woods. So what's really happening is is it's about the same number of people participating, just a lot higher percentage, are killing deer earlier in the year now. You know, these guys in many cases are rifle and shotgun hunters that, that also bow hunt. They may have always bow hunted or maybe just picked it up, but uh, we're seeing a shift into that harvest earlier in the year, uh, which I'm a diehard bow hunter. I mean, I've always bow hunted, but, you know, I see it in my area where more people seem to be in the woods during archery season, you know, take advantage of some, you know, additional uh, antlerless opportunities in some cases, uh, take advantage of better weather in many cases. But uh, one thing I think that it's important for people, particularly Northerners, to remember about this is I know where I am in Pennsylvania, historically, you know, we had a, a two-week buck season. That, that was the most electric time of the year. 
And when deer season came around, schools were closed. I mean, it literally was bigger than Christmas. And you could just feel the excitement. There was orange everywhere and the roads were full. And, and that's very different today. It's not like that. And, and you have a lot of people saying, you know, well, I wish it was like it used to be. And, and deer season is so different. You know, nobody hunts anymore. Well, the reality of it is we're killing more deer in my area of Pennsylvania today than we used to. It just rather than happening over a two-week period, today it happens over a three-month period. So uh, anybody, particularly, not so much the south, because southerners have, you know, much longer hunting seasons. But for us in the north that have very short, intense firearm seasons, in many cases, they are very different today because some of our buddies, you know, are, are filling those tags earlier in the year during archery season. And it gives us the appearance that hunting is not as important. Uh, that's not the case at all. It's just taking advantage of much longer opportunities than we used to have. Yeah. Yeah. I've wondered about this and I've wondered if we maybe it'd be interesting to look at a measurement of hunter days. So not just the number of unique people that hunt in a given year, but if we looked at how many days hunted, I'm, I'm, I'm guessing, or I'm going to, I'm curious if that number has actually gone up. So while over the last 20, 30 years, we've seen a number in licensed buying hunters, my intuition tells me that 30 years ago, while we had however many hunters, 15 million hunters or whatever it was, my guess is that the average number of days hunted by those people was much lower than the average number of days hunted by people now today, at least some percentage of hunters today, because I get the feeling that there's a lot more people today that view hunting as a lifestyle where they dedicate vacation time and weekends and, and all that to spending significant, significant amounts of time outside. So I think that that number of people who spends you know 10 to 15 days hunting or more is probably a lot higher now than it was 30 years ago. So that's that's an assumption. That's Maybe I'm too much in that world and I'm assuming more people are like the people I talk to, but I wonder yeah. if that's the case. I don't know. Have you, have you ever thought about that or heard anything about that, Kip? Yeah, no, and you're exactly right. Uh, we did a national survey a couple of years ago to just see with states, you know, what was the average number of days that, that folks deer hunted a year? And uh, the national average was around 14 days. Uh, we did a same survey of, uh, at that point, it was QDMA members, you know, before we became the National Deer Association. And, uh, and our members hunted on average, it was 30 days a year. So we more than doubled uh, the national average. But, so you are right, today, the average person just spends far more time available, partly because bag limits tend to be more liberal. There's a lot more opportunity season-wide. So yeah, people are spending a lot more time in the woods. And this year, as part of our 2021 deer report, we asked states about, you know, the number of days that their they, folks could archery hunt in their state, uh, muzzleloader hunt, and firearm hunt. And then whether the total number of days, you know, was more, less, or similar to what it was 10 years ago. And uh, opportunities are far more today than what they were a decade ago. Um, with the exception of the Western states, and, the, and all of those have similar number of days of deer hunting available today to a decade ago. Uh, the, many of the states, and uh, I should say the majority of the states in the, the Northeast, uh, the Southeast, and the Midwest uh, have more opportunity, more total number of days available to deer hunt today than they did a decade ago. So, yeah, so there's more opportunity. Hunters are taking advantage of it and, and greatly spreading that total deer harvest out over a longer period of time. Yeah, it's an interesting, it's an interesting trend, and it's also, I think, part of why some hunters are confused by 
the data that we see that shows like, hey, hunter participation is going down, it's going down. They keep seeing those headlines and hearing that. But then when they go to the woods, they feel like, man, there's more hunters than ever. I'm getting, you know, it's harder to find places to hunt. It's harder to get anywhere where there's not other people. And my guess is that it's because of this. While there's maybe fewer total people, there's higher participation from that group. And so uh, that might be part of why pressure-wise it, it can feel like there's more people out there. Um, it, it's maybe an optical illusion just based off of the intensity of the people that do participate and the fact that um, there's more opportunity. People are getting into this lifestyle more passionately than maybe in the past. And, and that's, that's what we're, we're experiencing maybe. So mm-hmm. it's interesting. Um, what, what kept the, the report ends with a, an overview of some of the, the top kind of legislative wins or the top issues that you guys as an organization have focused on and been working on. Um, I know that the National Deer Association and you personally uh, have been involved with a lot of different uh, issues, advocacy opportunities that are that are working towards you know fighting for deer and deer habitat and deer hunters. Uh, when you look back at 2020, are there a couple things that stand out to you as as the most uh, substantial or encouraging wins on that front that you want to make sure we know about? Yeah, I think one of them is that uh, you know all of the the Pittman Robertson dollars and that that's the excise tax on the hunting equipment that we buy. Um, many hunters don't even realize it's there. It's just built into the price you pay. That goes back to, to help fund our wildlife programs. Um, one of the biggest wins is that now some of those dollars can be used to, to help with the R3 efforts. And, and R3 is recruitment. So it's hunter recruitment and hunter retention and hunter reactivation. Um, now, for the first time ever, some of those Pittman-Robertson dollars can be used to help support that R3 movement, which helps with our hunter numbers. Um, and to the casual hunter, that might not seem like much, but that was a huge win, a huge, huge win for, for conservation and for the future of deer hunting. So, uh, you know, there, there was a lot of state-specific things that, you know, opened public land and got more hunter access and that type of thing. But big scale or, or large scale of, man, the opportunity to use those PR dollars to help uh, support the future of hunting was a really, really big thing. and something we were extremely proud to help be a part of. That's awesome. Yeah. Again, speaking to the importance of, uh, of help building our base of participants and supporters, uh, all those recruitment and R3 initiatives are, are important to do that. So that's, that's huge. What about, what about in 2021? Is there anything that you are really paying attention to or that you would encourage us to really pay attention to or to get involved in when it comes to issues or legislation or something we need to be, uh, you know, sending emails and letters and pounding on doors about? Yeah, um, just this past week, I saw that, you know, there was a bill that was dropped in Oklahoma for a Bigfoot hunting season. That <laughs> That is a big one that, that, that we are watching. Oh, boy. Uh, no, you know, I bring that up partly because I, I think, you know, it's, it's a lot of hunters saw that and, you know, kind of joke about it. But uh, obviously, people can look at that and say, Ooh, that's really out there relative you know, to, to hunting. But it's amazing the number of other bills in states that, you know, they don't have Bigfoot attached to it that are really bad, bad bills for, for hunting or for the future of conservation that the average hunter doesn't know about. So uh, um, while they may not be associated, you know, with the, with a Yeti or anything like that, 
it, uh, we fight very hard on those and we try to make those available to hunters. Um, so we're really just now getting into the legislative season. You know, a lot of legislatures are getting back in session and a lot of deer hunting related bills are just starting to pop up. But uh, I've seen some come across my desk about uh, legalizing uh, venison sales. You know, that is, that is a huge or is going to be a huge bill. This is out of Maryland. Um, uh, so in a handful of others that are like that, that, uh, that we're going to be weighing very heavily on in the near future. So, um, for, from a hunting perspective, there's a lot of deer hunters out there, you know, that, that just aren't into the advocacy end and, uh, and I totally get it. So, uh, they can at least rest assured knowing that there are organizations out there like NDA and, and, and many others that are fighting on their behalf and, uh, and keeping track of all that legislative stuff. So we'll let our members and others know of, of opportunities to engage and uh, on a whole plethora of bills and uh, you know what our stance is, whether we support or oppose that stuff and uh, give them a chance uh, to engage too if they want. Yeah. So, so Kip, I would venture to say, um, and I'm just going to make this claim, whether I'm, um, whether anyone's granted me this power or not, but I will say that today in 2021, to be a upstanding member of the deer hunting community no longer means you can just go out there and, and shoot a deer or two a year. I would say that today it should be a requirement. And of course, no one's actually going to um, require this, but I'm going to say that in your own head, you should think of it as a requirement to be an informed hunter and an advocate for what we're doing. Because if we want to be able to keep hunting and if we want to be able to keep this lifestyle out there, uh, we need to be a participant in making that a reality. We can't just depend on people like you, Kip. We can't just point to that other person to take care of this stuff. It's on all of us. We have a responsibility to to contribute to the future of deer and deer hunting and wild places. Uh, my argument is that as an individual responsibility, as much as it is the responsibility of an organization like the NDA. So, if we will, if people will bear with me on this and 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 take that to be truth, as I believe it to be. What would your top action items be for a deer hunter in 2021, Kit? Maybe one or two things that every one of us can take action on this year in some kind of way to be an informed and active member of this deer hunting community. Uh, I wholeheartedly support what you are saying there, Mark. I agree with that. And, uh, and I, I will add my part to that is that I think that they absolutely should join a conservation organization uh, of his or her choosing that most closely fights for, for what they would like as deer hunters. I certainly hope that folks would join the national deer association, but if you choose to not join us, join somebody else, you know, another organization that is fighting to keep, you know, deer on the landscape and to keep deer healthy and, and to provide opportunities for, to, you know, to go a field and hunt them. So I think one, join to help support that. And number two is we have to change the culture around hunting from just being a, a consumer thing that we do to seeing it as our responsibility to, to mentor the next generation of hunters. So uh, I think that every single hunter out there today should look at it as his or her job to expose somebody new to hunting and then to teach it and to mentor them. Might be once a year, might be five times a year, you know, whatever you can do. And then next year, uh, do it again, expose somebody else. So uh, I think that is the way that we will win 
you know, the long-term game relative uh, to managing wildlife and making sure that the hunting is looked at as a necessary uh, uh, recreation in the United States. We need hunters to, to harvest white-tailed deer. Uh, we need hunters you know, to support wildlife programs, largely through uh, purchases of hunting equipment. So those are my big things. Join an organization and mentor somebody. Take somebody afield and teach them what it is uh, to, to be a steward of our natural resources. Love it. I'm uh, I'm right there with you, Kip. So my last question for you is this. If there's anyone listening today who has been, you know, inspired in some way or reminded of, you know, a desire to become a more active conservationist in some kind of way, taking some kind of more active role in the types of things we're discussing today, um, and if they want to pursue that a little bit more this year, where would you send them for inspiration? I get a lot of people who say, you know, I, I read your book or I heard this thing or I, I learned about this thing. You know, what should I read next or what should I watch next or what should I listen to next? Is there anything out there that you would encourage folks to to read or or watch or listen to or explore some kind of, I don't know, what what what's something that pops to mind when I mention that? Well, uh, the, the first thing is, is, is our website. Uh, we provide so much information from everything from the brand new casual hunter up to experienced hunters. And we purposely try to provide information either on our website or our YouTube channel that, that can fill the, the need that, that that hunter wants. So uh, I've, I've got to encourage uh, folks to check out our stuff. But in addition to that, there are so many resources out there today. And I think people should take a look at how they most prefer to get that from a, from a podcast standpoint. There's all kinds of information if people like to get it by listening. You know, your podcast is obviously a, a great opportunity. Uh, the Meat Eater podcast, uh, all kinds of information out there for folks. There's also more opportunity than ever before to, to receive information in short videos. You know, on YouTube, it's amazing the number of different channels that, that I take a look at and watch and follow and then learn myself. So, um, I, you know, rather than saying a specific name or a specific place, I think it's 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 a good thing for people to realize that however you like to receive that information, it is there for you today at unprecedented levels. So if you're a magazine reader or a newspaper reader or whatever that is, it is there. So just it, it doesn't take much digging to do to, to be able to find it. And uh, I'm, I'm a, a big fan of being a, a voracious reader. I tell my kids that. I tell folks that I work with that. You know, there's nothing that we can do from a hunting perspective to, to be more engaged or, or to help hunting and to make sure that we are informed so that, you know, when we talk with our hunting buddies or our, our state wildlife agencies or conservation officers, whatever it is, you know, if we're more informed about it, we can make a, a more positive impact to the future. So, so read, learn, watch, however you want to get it, but uh, be informed and uh, impact deer positively in your community. Can we get a book recommendation from you? Any book related Your, to? <laughs> I, I like that, but you don't need, you don't need to cater just to make it. Wild country. <laughs> okay, I'll uh, I'll let that stand, and and certainly will encourage people to read that one. Um, well, Kip, what about lastly here? People that want to become a member of the NDA or learn more, where can they go to do that? They can go right to our website, which is uh, deerassociation.com. dot com. And uh, they can join there. And if they want to take a little test drive and just see what is there first, uh, there's all kinds of information available, you know, on hunting or, or habitat management or deer biology, whatever the case is, they, they can look through that and realize or see if, hey, if I think this is for me or not, and, uh, and then make a choice after that. 
Perfect. All right, Kip. Well, uh, as always, I really appreciate you taking the time to to walk through this stuff with us and and share your perspective and 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 all the work you put into putting together the white the, the deer report, not the whitetail report anymore, the deer report this year. Thank you for, you know, sussing through all this data and and giving us some really important highlights. So uh, I appreciate it and uh, looking forward to doing it again in a year. Absolutely, Mark. My pleasure. Always good to talk with you. Uh, you have a great day. Thank you too. All right. That's a wrap for today. Thank you for tuning in. Uh, you know, I'd be remiss if I let the opportunity slip away. Kip did recommend my book, That Wild Country, which uh, is for sale on places such as the Meat Eater website or Amazon or from a lot of local bookstores. You can get a lot of these online. Check them out. I certainly appreciate your support. It was uh, probably the hardest thing I've ever done, the most work I've ever put into anything. So your continued support in picking up a copy or buying a gift for someone, man, it means the world. I honestly can't tell you how much that means to me. So thank you in advance. And thanks for listening. Thanks for being a part of this whole thing. We've been doing it Wired to Hunt for a lot of years now and hope to continue doing for many years to come. So until then, thank you and stay Wired to Hunt. I'm sure a lot of you guys remember the old ceremonial hunting tradition of eating the heart out of the first animal you kill. Meat from those organs are among the most nutrient-rich foods on the planet. You can get those same benefits your ancestors craved via convenient daily capsules from Heart and Soil. Find out more at heartandsoil.co. And remember, use code MEATEATER for 10% off your purchase. Outdoor adventure won't wait for engine problems. Things like hard starts, rough performance, and lost fuel economy are often caused by fuel gum and varnish buildup. Seafoam can help your engine run better and last longer. You simply pour a can into your gas tank. Hunters and anglers rely on seafoam to keep their engines running the way it should the entire season. So pick up a can of seafoam today at your local auto parts store or visit seafoamworks.com to learn more.